A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode is in honor of all our British and Commonwealth listeners of Jewish History Soundbites to mark the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth II, who was a piece of history herself, Uh, 70 years. She was the longest reigning monarch in British history, longer than Queen Victoria of the 19th century, Uh, one of the longest in world history. And uh, definitely there's loads to talk about as far as, uh, you know, her place in history, which I'm not going to address at all because I'm just going to focus a little bit on um, not specifically hers, but the royal family and touch on a little bit throughout history, not much, but then focus on the 20th century. Um, before that, there's a little bit of feedback from the previous episode about the Night of Yehuda, Bicheska Landau. Um, quite a bit of feedback. I'm just going to mention a couple of things, and one of them is actually directly related to this episode about the history of the Jews and the royal family. This one is about the English royal, the British royal family, but in general, Jews and royals is a fascinating subject. Um, so first of all, there's a couple of corrections uh, that were submitted about the Night of Yehuda episode. Rabbi um, Ephraim Zalman Margolis, the base of Ephraim, who I mentioned was in the Brode Clois, so I made it sound like he was in the Clois the same time as the Night of Yehuda, um, he actually was not. He was at a later period of time. They did not overlap there at all. Um, so that's an important correction. And then there's another, I guess, more amusing correction is that I uh, cited the famous uh, tshuva of the Night of Behuda regarding his opposition to the reciting the L'Shem Yichud, which, which uh, people with a Kabbalistic bent or Hasidim um, recite before doing a mitzvah, and he was opposed to it, so he he wrote there at the end of the, he, he, he paraphrased the famous Pasuk in Navi, Yesharem Darke Hashem Tzadikim Yelchubam, and the rest of the Pasuk correctly says, Paishim Yikashlubam, and the Naidi uh, Behuda wrote instead, Chasidim Yikashlubam. Now I didn't even know what the original Pasuk said, and I said instead, Rishayim Yikash Lubam. 
So someone submitted, a very alert listener and knowledgeable listener said, I'm surprised that you made a mistake, Yehuda, that you said Rishayim Yikash Lubam instead of Paishim Yikash Lubam. So you said the Pasuk wrong. So I don't know why anyone's surprised that I made that mistake. You have to lower your expectations from me. Tanakh is one of the many, many subjects that I do not know. In fact, pretty much almost any subject I don't know, aside from Jewish history, which I know pretty well. And uh, and therefore, anything outside of that is, uh, you know, please don't have any expectations from me. And in fact, we can re-paraphrase the same Pasuk and say, Geberer ye kashalbam. In any event, what's especially relevant was another um, feedback I got from a listener, um, is that when I spoke about the relationship between the Jewish community of Prague and its rabbinical leader, the Knight of Yehuda, with the Austrian government, in particular, the Empress Maria Teresa. Um, So... um, a listener um, sent me a... Well, of course, there's a famous hespid, the Night of delivered upon the passing of Maria Teresa in 1780. I think I mentioned it. I don't know if I mentioned it. But in any event, he um, he sent me the um, this uh, very nice shear that was delivered by the legendary um, uh, Dafyomi uh, rabbi, uh, or Magid Shir, whatever you want to call him, Srili Bornstein, um, who discussed in depth the whole um, story of the Naidi Yehuda delivering this hespit for Maria Teresa, and he went through many sections of this hespit, and it's a whole very interesting story, and I enjoyed listening to it, and I recommend that all of you listen to Reb Srili talking about this hespit that uh, the Naidi Yehuda delivered for the Empress Maria Teresa upon her passing. If anything, it's more than anything, it's it's kind of tragic in a way. It's part of the story of Jewish history, the way that uh, people like the Knight of Yehuda were, felt that they were forced to talk about the monarch in such incredible terms and talking about an anti-Semite, uh, Maria Teresa, and, and, and he speaks about her as if she was like, you know, the greatest uh, human being that ever existed for the Jewish people. What I, what the thought that crossed my mind as as he was going through the hespit was that if more than anything else, these type of events in Jewish history is almost a more compelling argument for Jewish nationalism than Pinsker Achad Ha'am or Herzl ever came up with. The kind of like the tragedy of living under um, such rulers that you have to like you know. Uh, be so effusive about your praise to so that they don't kill you. Um, but let's get to the relationship of uh, of uh, the uh, Jewish Jewish uh, Jewish history and and the British royal family. There's this uh, great story that I heard the uh, legendary um, sports broadcaster Bob Costas Costas. Uh, relate the story and give his own commentary to it, which I'm going to share. He said this story, uh, an apocryphal story, it obviously never happened, that there was a British fellow and an American fellow in the 1930s, this is before Queen Elizabeth, this is when there was still a king in England, and they're arguing about something, something totally not relevant to kings or anything, just a random uh, argument, and um, it gets heated and they get upset at each other, so the American says to the British guy, uh, down with the king. 
he used a different word, which I'm, you know, I'm going to use more appropriate language. And um, the British guy's taken aback, so he says to him, remember it's the 1930s, he says to the American, down with Babe Ruth. Um, so that's the equivalent, you know. So on one hand, you have dynastical succession, a bloodline, you know, that the royalties by birth, they don't do anything to achieve their rank, they don't do anything to achieve greatness, they're born into it, and this is who they are, and that's what makes them special. Whereas the representative of American greatness is someone who was born to an abusive saloon keeper and was an alcoholic and, and achieved greatness through becoming the greatest baseball player to have ever lived. Um, so that's that's key. You know, that's in other words, there's a symbol of Americanism as opposed to um, uh, British uh, royalty. So that's that's. Um, but let's discuss British royalty and not royal history, just how it relates to Jewish history. I assume everyone saw The Crown anyway, so you know everything about um, royal history of the 20th century. So there's nothing for me to add to what wasn't already discussed in The Crown or in future seasons of it. But there is a random tidbit that I would mention, especially since tonight, uh, tomorrow, is 9-11. And uh, the 21st anniversary, I believe, of 9-11. Now, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, had the Royal Guard Band, I'm sure there's a more official name for it, at Buckingham Palace play the Star-Spangled Banner the day after 9-11. Now, just to put that into historical perspective, it's not just a break of royal tradition that they played a different song than, than, than the regular song that they play. Um, it was like a break of like 600 years, 700, 800 years of tradition that the first time they played some other song. So that's one one aspect of it, but I would add to it that the Star-Spangled Banner was written by Francis Scott Key during the War of 1812 against the British. And he's writing it in Baltimore Harbor, describing how the American flag is still standing despite all the, uh, the, um, the, 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 you know, the rockets, red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof of the night that the flag was still there. Those bombs bursting in air were fired from British naval uh, uh, vessels. So the, the, the idea is, the irony there is that the ro- you know, royalty in Queen Elizabeth, you know, was expressing a royalty leadership initiative there. Royalty is not about sticking obstinately with tradition, um, or conservative tradition. It's more about being royal, leading, taking initiative reacting to changing circumstances, knowing when to break tradition, and you need courage and independence to do that. So I thought that that was a great manifestation of that, uh, what she did at that time. In in any event, let's get back to the historic relationship that the Jews have had with British royalty. So in ancient history, it doesn't go very well. King Edward I expels the Jews from England in the year 1290, and I discussed this at length um, on the London episode, part one, so I refer you to that episode if you haven't heard it yet. Um, And then the Jews don't even live in England for the next several centuries. And then I went on to discuss in the London episode, part two, which I refer you to that if you haven't listened to that yet either, or just want to review it, where there's the unofficial resettlement of Jews in England in the 1650s under Oliver Cromwell after the British uh, Civil War. 
Now, when King Charles II reassumes the throne in 1660, um, he looks the other way. In other words, there's no there's no banning the Jews again. And the reason for that is, is because it was an unofficial resettlement, what Menashe ben Israel uh, and others had negotiated with the Cromwell, the Rump Parliament, the government then at the time to reinstate uh, Jews or allow their settlement in, in England. It was unofficial. It wasn't a law in the books. And that's a good thing. If it had become an official law in the books, then it would have been definitely rescinded afterwards. The expulsion decree would have been reinstated afterwards when Charles II reassumed the throne. He would have re-expelled them. Um, so that's, that, that, that would have happened. The fact that Jews were able to continue even after the, royal, the British royalty returned in, in, uh, in 1660 is because it was an unofficial uh, law. There's a random tidbit, by the way, once we brought up Charles. If the current new king retains his name as Charles, and he's allowed to assume any name he wants, kind of like the Pope uh, when he becomes king. But if he sticks with his name that he has now, which is Charles, then he'll be Charles, King Charles III. In other words, this will be the first time that then there's been a sovereign as, with the name of Charles since Charles II, of, since the restoration of the monarchy following the, British, the English Civil War and the Cromwell era, um, in 1660, since the, the monarchy was restored then. So that would be the first time they would have a sovereign with the name Charles. In any case, we move along to the modern era where Jews begin to you know, resettle in England in much greater numbers. You have the Victorian era, Queen Victoria and the Jews. Um, in fact, when Queen Victoria was quite young, there's an, again a, a, a legend. It's, it's very hard to know if it was a real story. Probably was not, but there's a story that the the one of the reasons that uh, in the chief rabbi elections um, in the uh, in the in the mid 1800s the year escapes me right now, but Rabbi Nathan Adler, Rabbi Doctor Nathan Adler became of who's the rabbi in Hanover in Germany. He he was elected the uh, the chief rabbi. So one of the reasons was that Queen Vic, one of the alleged reasons was that Queen Victoria supported his candidacy. Because when she was a young woman, she was visiting uh, Germany and she was expecting a child and she was in her ninth month and she was not going to make it back to England in time and she wanted that child to be eligible to become the next um, king of, of England or queen or whatever, the next monarch of England. So the um, and, she, and it would have to be born on, on British territory. She didn't know what to do. She was going to be born in Germany. And... Allegedly, according to this uh, legend, uh, Rabbi Adler of Hanover, where the Queen was, where Queen Victoria was at the time, she w uh, he advised her that um, she should give birth on a British Navy ship of flying the Union Jack, flying the British flag, which is officially British territory. In this way, it would be considered that the that the child is born in England, and because of her gratitude for such this brilliant idea that he had. So she supported his candidacy to become the chief rabbi of the British Empire. Um, whether the story is true or not is irrelevant, but that's what legend has it. So he got the rabbi. And by the way, the other main candidate was rabbi. There's another, a couple, two other candidates, and one of the other ones was Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. So he almost became the chief rabbi of, uh, of England. Queen Victoria also knighted Sir Moses Montefiore, um, and so the Jews start to more to integrate into British uh, society at the time. So to have a Jew knighted by the Queen, 
was the first time that happened. That was a very significant event of the relationship between both Jews and English society and also the royal family. If we continue in that vein to a couple of generations later, so of course the Rothschild family gets all kinds of titles as well. The wealthy banking family, the original Nathan Rothschild, opens up the branch of the banking uh, business in in London. Um, and uh, his grandson, who's his namesake also, Na- the next Nathan Rothschild, is known as Natty Rothschild. So he, uh, when he went to Cambridge University, he didn't graduate, by the way, went into business, which is quite common. It's also kind of a Jewish tradition. Um, and, and he, But he was in Cambridge, and he was there with the future King Edward VII. And they were friends, and they had later a business relationship. Uh, Rothschild lend, loaned him money, and uh, I don't know if this is related to their friendship or the fact that they did business together or not, but Nathan Rothschild becomes this one. Natty Rothschild becomes the first Jew in the House of Lords. Um, he um, so he had this close relationship with the royal family and this lord title, and that boded well for him and British Jewry at the time. Of course, his son is the one who's the recipient of the Balfour Declaration from Lord Balfour. Um, but if we move along to more recent royalty, one of the strangest stories I read up um, about the. Queen and the Jewish community is about how she had a bris done for by an Orthodox male uh, for her son uh, Prince Charles, who's now King Charles. He, she hired this to circumcise her son. This Rabbi Yaakov Snowman um, was a London male. People used him then. He was the popular male at the time, and uh, she wanted to use him to. Uh, I don't think she was the queen at the time when he was born. But um, it's unclear if any other of her children had a bris as well. Uh, it's also unclear why in the world they had a bris done in the first place. And, and most of all, it's unclear if the queen served bagels and locks at the bris ceremony. So if she did not, which it's likely that she did not, then it's obviously not considered a bris altogether, so she wasn't even Yitzi. Um But legend has it that this was an old tradition. It wasn't Queen Elizabeth's... Uh, uh, idea to give a bris to her son is some sort of tradition of British royalty to have Jewish males circumcise their sons all the way back to King George I in the 1700s um, back in Germany when, when, the, when the family was still in Germany there were some aristocratic parents in Germany who hired Jewish males and uh, King George brought that custom with him to England Queen Victoria according to this legend which probably is not true hired Jewish miles to circumcise all of her sons. Um, and this might have even biblical or messianic uh, relations, uh, vibes as well, that the house of Windsor comes from, you know, the you know the biblical King David, so they need, a, they need to have a, a bris. It, it seems to be an unsubstantiated legend. It also probably says more about Jews and their perceived relationships with monarchs uh, that this mythology is developed, uh, it says more about that than about the royal family. It's similar in Polish Jewish history. There's the Esterke legend that there was this girl in Kazimierz Dolny, which in the early years was the uh, um, capital where the Polish kings were, and that he loved this girl Esther, um, not the first king in history to love a Jewish girl Esther. And the Polish uh, king Kazimierz married her, 
and that you know again it's it's developed as a legend in Polish Jewish history to show how close the Jewish community is with the Polish royal family in in uh, in the old Polish kingdom so it's kind of similar to that move along to the story of World War II with the Nazi connections in the royal family. There was King Edward VIII that following his abdication when he wanted to marry a divorced American woman. So he had to abdicate the throne to King George VI, the, the, the mother, the, excuse me, the father of, of Queen Elizabeth. So he had, he, and he, he seems to have had some Nazi th- sympathies. He, he meets with Adolf Hitler and there were other uh, stories like that of, of Nazi connections and Nazi sympathies within the royal family. And that brings us to one of the, also one of the strangest stories, is that people, some some bizarre reason, wanted to make at some point an issue of this, of this uh, video clip that surfaced a few years ago that shows the Queen Elizabeth when she's a little child giving a Nazi salute in 1933. Now the reason it's not a story and it's a non-issue is for the very obvious reason that she was a very little girl. She was like seven, eight years old at the time. So as far as its importance, it's a non-story. It's a meaningless story. It's 1933 for crying out loud also. So come on. But even beyond that, let's say it is a story for some reason. That's beyond me. Why would it even be considered a Jewish story? Uh, Great Britain fought the Nazis during World War II. Many British soldiers and civilians were killed. Uh, They were the enemy. Uh, They were fighting each other. So even if one can can come up with some twisted argument that the Nazi salute of a child in 1933 is an issue, it definitely ain't a Jewish issue. It's a British issue. Um, But since exclusivity of victimhood is evidently an essential component of Jewish identity, especially anything related to the Nazis, so then this is somehow a Jewish story as well. But on a more positive note, um, her mother-in-law, Queen Elizabeth's mother-in-law, Prince Philip's mother, was a righteous among the nations, recognized by Yad Vashem. Uh, Princess Alice of Greece, who had suffered from health issues, she was deaf, uh, she was um, she stayed in Greece after she and her husband separated, and uh, she was a nun, um, and she risked her lives during the Nazi occupation of Greece to save Jews, Greek Jews, during the Holocaust. And she um, was recognized by Yad Vashem, and she's in fact buried on Harazesim in a church courtyard of the Greek Orthodox uh, Church over there. And Prince Philip actually has been there in an unofficial visit to the state of Israel, which we'll talk about soon, the royal family's relationship with Israel. So um, that's an, it's a nice story about the royal family uh, um, in, 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 and the saving Jews during the Holocaust. Um, the royal family, with their relationship with British Jewry, has been quite fantastic in, in the 20th century, very warm, very positive. And over the last century or so, especially the queen herself and her family, um, I think her husband or her, her son or someone there visited the Bevis Mark Synagogue and had the privilege of sitting in Moses Montefiore's seat in some an official ceremony. Um, and there, and it you know it was a mutual mutual feeling. The British jury's attitude towards the monarch, towards the queen, is with awe and reverence. They they every British English shul says a, a prayer for the sovereign. Very traditional, very conservative, very. A good relationship like that. Um, that's as far as Jews in England itself. 
when it comes to the royal family's relationship with the state of Israel, things get a drop more complicated. Um, if anyone's been to Yerushalayim, there's the King George Street, one of the main streets of Yerushalayim. That's named for King George V, who was the king when the British mandate on Palestine began. Um, so that street is named for him. And uh, But much more problematic was the relationship with King George VI, who, who, who's, who's Queen Elizabeth's father, and he's the, um, um, the, the, uh, the reigning monarch when, when there's the tension between the British Empire, the British mandatory government, and the uh, rising Jewish nationalism in the Yishuv, which ultimately leads to the creation of the State of Israel, uh, which the, the uh, British weren't excited about, to say the least, and it was a very tense and period fraught with tension. And because of that, and because the British Foreign Office uh, was quite anti-Israel and, and throughout all the years, they made, the British Foreign Office made a ban for the royal family of no visits to Israel. And the royal family was you know, quite happy to comply. They never made an issue out of it. And uh, her son, um, like I said, Prince Charles, now King Charles, did make unofficial visits. And then just a couple of years ago, her grandson, Prince William, made the first official visit ever of the British royal family estate, official visit to uh, Israel just literally just two, three, four years ago, I think. But for many years, and the Queen herself never, um, never, never visited, um, she, she's, you know, it's easy to blame the Foreign Office, but at the end of the day, she, she never visited. She also made some interesting remarks on an official visit to Jordan in 1984. She was shown a map of the West Bank, which is you know, disputed territory and has been Israeli-occupied since the Six-Day War in 1967, and Queen Elizabeth called it depressing. And, uh, and she described um, Israeli planes flying in the West Bank as frightening, and she also laid a wreath at a memorial to Arab soldiers who died attacking Israel. So you have this this you know refusal to to visit at any time. So on one hand, and then this you know interesting uh, visit to Jordan on the other hand, um, and then the same thing goes uh, with with the Holocaust. Um, on one hand, uh, she did not visit a concentration camp for many years. She made a state visit to Poland in 1996, um, but she didn't visit Auschwitz. Um, and there was criticism, so at the last minute they added to her itinerary to go to the memorial at the Umschlagplatz in Warsaw, where the Jews were rounded up in the Warsaw Ghetto and to, to, to be sent to the Treblinka uh, death camp. Um, so she laid a wreath over there. Um, 20 years later, uh, last official foreign trip before her death, uh, and she went to Germany, 2015. And um, in that trip, it was her fifth visit to Germany, and it was that visit, she made her first ever visit to a concentration camp, to Bergen-Belsen, and she met uh, with Holocaust survivors there, and she listened to their stories, and she said, wow, that must have been horrific. On the other hand, that's on one side of the coin. On the other hand, when it came to British citizens, who were Jewish citizens, Holocaust survivors, then her attitude is very different. On January 27, 2005, the world commemorated the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and she hosted a group of British Jewish 
Holocaust survivors, uh, and um, and she, you know, she always had a very tight schedule and was very punctual, also. And she starts talking personally with the survivors. She's standing among them and talking to them, each one personally. And at one point, she was told that you know her schedule is calling and she has to move on to the next event. And she decided on her own to stay. This is one of the only times she ever did this in her 70 years of being queen. She stayed for another two hours, not another few minutes. And she met with every single one of the survivors there and listened patiently and quietly to their personal story of what they went through. It's really an incredible thing. Uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs was there at the time and he, he, he was like, he used to talk about it. He was blown away. It was an amazing thing so out of character, but she gave each survivor her time. A very large group, quite a few survivors, and she was focused, unhurried. She stood there listening to each and every story. So in summary, what seems to be that there was a clear distinction with the relationship between the Jewish people and the British royal family, there's a clear distinction between Jews who were British subjects, were British citizens. Then there's a very warm an historically positive relationship with the royal family. On the other hand, with the Jewish people at large, who are not British citizens with Jewish history or the Jewish state, then it's ambivalent at best and possibly even borderline hostility at worst, which is a very interesting distinction. Now, the final question that we have to explore is, seems that Jews, especially specifically religious Jews, are obsessed. They love royalty. Um, and I was trying to figure out why. Why in the world would Jews love royalty so much? Um, so I came up with a few, and I'm more than uh, more would love to hear um, lis- listeners' uh, thoughts uh, about other reasons, possible reasons why um, religious Jews love royalty. The ones that I came up with is that it's tradition. Jews love tradition. It's old. Or it's aristocratic. Um, Jews love. Monarchy in Jewish tradition is present in so many ways. The idea of monarchy, the idea of melech. There's a certain stability and conservatism in royalty, in monarchy, in kings and queens, and all the ceremony that fits in very well with a lot of Jewish ideas. Specifically with Queen Elizabeth, there's this long reign, 70 years. When she grew up, there was still a British Empire to talk about. She oversaw an entire 20th century, 21st century, into the modern era. Um, royal families, like Hasidic Rebbe families in a way, there's dynastic succession, there's this continuity, and I think all those components make uh, Jews, and specifically religious Jews, very, they like it, they like the idea of royalty, and there's probably other reasons as well. And um, that's a little bit about the relationship between Jews and royalty, British royalty. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.